0: Hello, and welcome to the River's Edge Church Podcast, Extra Conversations with Pastor Dave. Today, Pastor Dave will share in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're excited to share another episode with you today. And now, here's Pastor Dave. All right. I just want to welcome you to an extra conversation that we are doing on the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, As you know, we've been in a teaching series looking at this book. And just as a quick recap, if you've missed the first couple of weeks, uh, first, what Paul is doing is he is starting out strong by saying, hey, listen, church, I planted you a number of years ago. Now I'm hearing all kinds of reports that you guys are going off the rails. You are uh, have your pet celebrity preachers, and that's just not good with me. We're going to have to go down um, a road here, and uh, we're going to have to break this up. We're going to have to split this up a little bit um, because it's not right. It's not right to have these Crush man, crush preachers that you have. The reason why it's not right is because it creates allegiance to humans and not Christ, and that is what Paul is getting at in that first chapter. And then he, he kind of the whole book sort of makes a joke about how wise they think that they are, and he urges them to come back to the foolishness of the cross. The idea it the cross is foolish because one in that Roman world. There's no such thing as a free gift. You don't give a gift without an expectation in return. And and the message of the cross is just that. It's a free gift of grace and salvation through Jesus' blood alone that he died for us. And so that's foolish to the Corinthian world. It's just crazy. But this is what they believe. In addition, is foolish because what king dies and a revolution starts? These people, you have to imagine, are planting churches all over the Roman world, saying, we have a different king, and our kingdom is growing. And of course, they're talking about the church, but they're talking about this revolution of this kingdom, and it's just like, must be insane for the Roman world. And so, you know, in Corinth, they have their wisdom, they have their... um, Epicureans and Stoics and all the different philosophers. They have their their secular knowledge. Well, there's really no such thing as secular back in those days. Uh, they have their pagan knowledge is what they have. And so they didn't really have any need of the gospel. But Paul goes to this place, Corinth, he plants a church, and really I think the first few chapters are just like, hey, guys, let's get this thing together. He's just kind of lambasting them and saying, You guys think you're wise, but you're not. In fact, you think you're mature, but you're not. You're still drinking breast milk. You're still breastfeeding. You should be on solid food by now. You should be way further along in your faith. Instead, you are still on breast milk. And so he encourages the church, and he tells them, "Look, all things are yours. You got to understand the reality that Jesus wants for you. What he, what your inheritance is in Christ, and yet you're still going after the 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 easy things. You're still going after the basic life. Instead, build a solid foundation." And then next, we are actually, I'm actually not going to preach on chapter four, and um, it's one of those things. It's kind of a shame. On the other hand, it's a lot of things that we've already covered, but it's like what's important is that it's on leadership. And what I could say about chapter four and what I want to say about it is that leadership matters in the church. This is a case that Paul is making that leadership matters in the church. It just does. And I could go on for hours, telling you terrible stories of leadership and great stories of leadership in the church. And I'll probably end up telling a few through the course of this recording, um, but there's a few things that, in the Old Testament, that really, really reveal that leadership just matters. And you've got to remember, <coughs> excuse me, the Old Testament is Paul's reference for everything. It's, it's what he writes out of, because there is no New Testament. He hadn't written it yet. So, you know, so, Paul is thinking Old Testament here, and I mean, let's give you a few examples of just leadership in the Old Testament. Obviously, Moses is one. He's been called out, out of all the Israelites. God particularly called him and used him for his purposes, to lead his people out of Egypt, to away from the sin of the empire and into this new promised land, almost like a new kingdom of people. And then, well, let's, let's keep moving on. Um, of course, the story of David is so key to understanding good leadership. Um, there's this fun Hebrew phrase. Uh, the, the phrase, I'm not going to say it in Hebrew, but it's, it's seeable. Um, and uh, when you read through the book of 1 Samuel, one of the things that you'll notice is that Saul is very seeable by the people. He's good-looking. He's tall. He's a head higher than anyone else. He's the giant of Israel because he's a head taller than anyone else. But, Then it all kind of comes to a crescendo there in chapter 16, where Samuel is looking to anoint a new king, and he comes across the household of Jesse, and he's looking at all these kids and saying, these aren't the ones. Where's the one that the Lord's going to anoint? And they said, well, we have this other runt guy. He's the runt of the litter. He's the youngest. No one really cares about him. He's off tending the sheep, and it was David. And what is said is something that's very important about leadership today, and that is God does not look at the outward things, but he looks at the heart, and is so important. And, And I would even say that when you go to a church, it's so important to know the heart of your pastor. It's so important to know the heart of the leadership, to know that there's good intentions, to know that they're not Selfishly motivated to know that they want the things of Jesus um, in their own life personally, as well as the church. I, I think knowing the heart of leadership is so important in a church because we've seen things go so far awry. Um, you know, just it's it's really not too long ago that the Catholic Church has had a number of scandals. Um, there's movies about this, Spotlight um the the catholic sexual um predatory uh deal of the priests uh, against uh children it's it's horrific it's awful um just recently uh there's a youtube video that came out Uh, i watched it again yesterday because i was kind of contemplating this podcast and um it's really horrific it's you can go on youtube and find it. it essentially what happens is Somebody must know that this pastor, who's been a pastor at this church for 20-some-odd years, is going to confess to adultery because there's somebody kind of covertly filming, and that's the video you find on YouTube. And it's a church in Indiana, and I'm not sure who it is or what the church is, but the pastor goes up and confesses to an affair that he said happened 20 years ago. And basically, my, my takeaway on it when I watch the video is Why are you confessing this now? Usually you're confessing this now after 20 years, not because you feel guilty. You've successfully hidden it for a bunch of years, but something came to light. And that's why you're confessing it right now. You're confessing it right now because if you don't, someone else will. And so he confesses his sin. He says he needs to quit the church, essentially, and and, uh, submit to the leadership of uh, the elders and uh, go towards restoration and, and, and all this. And then the, ch- the church claps for him. I just, I, I don't know, I, the whole time I was watching and I just felt so sick to my stomach watching this and then to see what was in my mind such a wrong reaction from the church to clap for him. You know, in chapter 5, Paul will address sexual sin and he'll say, shouldn't you be grieved? Shouldn't you be mourning that you've got this person in your fellowship that's acting like this, and you're doing nothing? Shouldn't you just be grieved by this? And I was watching this, and I was grieved by what this guy was saying because, you know, I've been on the other side, the the leadership side of church for so long now, I know there's always more to the story. And then if you're watching the video or if you go look it up, you'll see there is more to the story. You'll see... uh, uh, an adult woman now, and her husband will take the stage and begin talking, and the husband will say, let her talk, let her talk. And uh, he says, you know us, you know us, and they say their names, and they say who they're related to, and they, clearly they've been a part of this church for a long time. And she goes on to detail how this pastor took her virginity on his office floor when she was 16 years old. And it was only after all this. And, and people started to protect their pastor, and people didn't know what to do, but I was just horrified watching this video. I just, the, the sin was all put out on display. It was just awful. Leadership matters. It, it's, it's like, I'm sure, I don't know anything about the state of that church in Indiana, but I'm sure it is torn to shreds by all this revelation. And only after this woman came up, and said all the things that he said or that she said. Did the pastor finally say, "Yeah, she was 16 at the time"? Only after all that, he wasn't even telling the full confession when he confessed, and they were calling him to the carpet. And I think it's a good thing. I think um, here's what else I think about pastors. I, I would say I've been one for a long time. I know a lot of pastors and. I guess what I would say is, if you're listening to this and you're a lay person, your pastor also needs a break. I mean, it is solely the fault of this pastor that he went into that that sin. But um, pastors are expected to have upwards of sixty some odd competencies to run a church. You know, you got to manage people, you got to manage a budget, you got to write great sermons everybody wants to hear on a Sunday, you got to manage your facilities, you got to make sure that uh, you order the right. you know, you pick the right logo. You got to make sure that, that uh, at the, the men's retreat and the women's retreat, they've, they've got the right uh, themes, and you got to make sure that they're decorated right, and, and, and you got to think through other things like discipleship and children's ministry, and, and I got to know, like, I got to review children's discipleship material. What do I know about that? You know, I, I got to know all the right things about youth volunteers and, and what to do next. And when situations come up that maybe like the staff doesn't know about, I've, I've got to like walk them through that. And there's just so much there that I think there's times where pastors need a break and they don't know how to get out. And so they intentionally do something dumb. I, I don't know. I mean, I could totally be wrong. I just feel like I've seen that so many times. And it's terrible. Because that pastor in the first place should have taken a break. They should have thrown their hands up, said to their board, oh, by the way, you gotta know how to handle a board, pick right, correct board members, uh, deal with the whole political process with the church and how to get them and, and, and make sure that they're above reproach. And then you also have to call people on their sin. You gotta do pastoral counseling. I, I mean, I could just go on and on and on for what a pastor's gotta do. Not to mention throwing COVID, you gotta be a tech whiz. You, you really need to know a lot to be a pastor. There's a lot of competencies. So pastors burn out, and pastors do dumb things when they feel like there's no way out. So I didn't mean to go on for that long about pastors, but I did. And the reason why I am is because Paul does. And like I said, I'm not teaching you through chapter 4, so I'm just going to read a little bit of it to you, and we're going to kind of go over chapter 4 because... I have this pastoral guilt when I skip a chapter of the Bible, when we're going through a book, I've got this pastoral guilt that you you need to know about it. I, you should be reading it on your own, but in case you're not, in case you uh, need a little bit of extra help expanding on it, that's why I'm here to go through this, because honestly, this is a lot of fun for me. This is sort of, I, I can't believe I get to call this work. All right. So 1 Corinthians 4, the seeability of David, let's see, we've gone through it all, pastors, leaders, God calls, God sets people apart in the Bible. Uh, Let me say this one other thing about pastors, and then we'll get to 1 Corinthians 4. It's a podcast. We have all the time in the world, right? Uh, John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And as you read through John chapter 10, one of the things that you'll note is that it says at the—this all kind of happened right around the Feast of Dedication— And when you look that up and figure out, well, what on earth is the Feast of Dedication? You'll figure out that that's basically Hanukkah. And in the Christian tradition, we don't really um, celebrate Hanukkah, but let's just give you the, the Twitter version of what Hanukkah is. Hanukkah commemorates the Maccabean Revolt, the revolt against this Greek leadership in the temple that would sacrifice a pig on the altar, an unclean animal on the altar, and would essentially, this Greek leadership, bought the high priesthood and um, sort of owned Israel at the time. And the the Maccabean family, the Maccabees, just a few hundred years before, Jesus revolted and threw them out and had this successful revolt. And that was known as the Feast of Dedication. It's you got to remember, too, during the Maccabean Revolt, there were people who were Jews who were, you know, decided that they were going to sell this priesthood, really, to the Greeks, and they were going to prop up the Greeks in their conquest of Jerusalem. These were these Jews that were fine with the complete perversion of their religion, the perversion of the Torah, the perversion of the temple, the perversion of the altar. They were fine with it. And so there was some bad leadership in Israel. There were some bad shepherds in Israel. And so on that day, the Feast of Dedication, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the one that won't allow these perversions. I'm the one who will actually lay down my life for the sheep instead of laying down your life. That's what Jesus is saying during this Feast of Dedication. So it's very important that we remember as we think about leadership— that when we ordain people to be pastors, when we call them to be pastors, that we say you're a shepherd in the way of the good shepherd. You're an under-shepherd of the good shepherd. That we have to understand that we are called not just to be shepherds, not just to be any type of leaders, but leaders in the way of the good shepherd. That's what we're called to be. And so I, I, I just wanted to say that because I think it's so key and so important. So now Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This, then, is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now let's pause on verse 1. This is on how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ. It's interesting that word servants means like a rower or an under rower. And this is a seafaring town. So... That word might have sort of represented the one that they use that Paul uses here in Greek is is sort of like, you've got the captain of the ship and then you've got the rower. You got the guy who's saying this is the direction we go, the guy who's in charge of all the rowers, and Paul's saying, I'm just a rower on this boat. You know so that could have be what it, what it means, but what he's saying is that God has entrusted me with an oar to move us forward as a church. He's entrusted me with that oar, with the mysteries God has revealed. In other words, essentially the mysteries God has revealed is Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament, Jesus being the Messiah. And so Paul says, I am a rower on this boat that's been entrusted with the mystery that God has revealed. And then he says this, and, and this is so key, especially if you're in any sort of leadership. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I think that's so key. And and, uh, leaders can just look at that one verse. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Paul had been given a trust by Jesus. Apollos had been given a trust by Paul. Timothy has been given a trust by Paul. You have been given a trust. You have got to prove faithful faithful. When somebody trusts you to do something, when somebody leads you to do something, especially in the church, when somebody says, you know, I've been called to do this. You're on my team. I want you to do it. You've got to prove faithful with what you've been given. If you've been called the ministry, you've got to prove it faithful by your life. And I think what Paul's saying to the church is, I have proven myself faithful by my life. Look at my life. I'm a rower. I carry the word of God, and then he says this. And I, I just love Paul's candor and straightness with them. I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, you have to remember, Paul is going after this church for talking about how wise and mature they are and that they keep failing to do the, the basic things. They're still on breast milk. They've not moved forward from that. And so... He's basically saying, "Look, I don't care if I'm judged by you. I don't care if anybody judges me. I don't even judge myself. I I am fully open for the Lord. My conscience is clear. The Lord can judge me in anything at the time, at the appointed time he wants." But this is the verse that, that is so key and as a pastor, I've seen this come to light. He, th- this is part B of verse 5. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. You, you have to understand both good and bad, your motives are going to be exposed. You cannot hide from God. Your Your motives cannot hide from God, whether good or bad. I've got a friend who was leading a church, and um, I don't want to give too much away here. He was leading a church, and um, uh, he uh, actually—let me take it back. He was a staff member at a church, and another staff member kept coming after him over and over and over again. And my friend and I would get coffee, and he would tell me about this, and I would say, something's not right. This, you know, you're telling me what's going on with you, and— and I don't think you've got any sin in this, but, dude, the, something's going to come up. Something, God's going to expose this person. You just keep acting faithfully. Even in the midst of the persecution, you act faithfully. To your calling, to your pastor, to your job, act faithfully. And it turned out that that other pastor who had been trying to get my friend Fired. Basically, it all came out one day that he had been having an affair. That he had had this sin brewing in his heart, and this sin and this contradictory lifestyle that was just brewing in his heart. It split everything up. It broke up his marriage. Broke up his life. Broke up everything. And it even, you know, it was this thing that he was taking it out on other people, and he was harming the church as a result. As awful. Things that are hidden in the darkness will come out. God will expose the motives because Jesus is truth. He is the source of all truth. He is light. And sometimes things will go on for a little bit, and you'll go, what is going on here? seems like there's sin. It seems like something's broken. It seems like somebody's messing up. And chances are they probably are, and God will expose that. So what Paul is saying is, Basically, God's going to judge between you guys and me. So, it's time to clean up your act. Your leaders, it's time to be proven faithful with what has been entrusted to you. It's time for you to start rowing on the same boat. Verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then, you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why did you boast as though you did not? So, this verse is really cryptic, and this is actually what the um, commentators will say. In fact, let me just read you this one commentary. The difficulty Greek phrase here, do not go beyond what's written, likely reflects a common slogan among the Corinthian believers. They may have used it in response to the teachers who supplemented, received apostolic teaching with worldly wisdom or divisiveness, thereby causing divisions with the congregation. By using this phrase, Paul is saying that he and Apollos adheres to the accepted standard of preaching the gospel and did not elevate one teacher over the other. It is possible that the phrase also refers to Scripture in a general sense, more specifically to Scriptures that were already cited. So it it could be that. Um, I like the idea that there's a Corinthian phrase. The reason why I like that idea is because all the way through the rest of the letter, Paul will pull out Corinthian phrases— And he will put them on display and then he will dissect them and dismantle them. And so it seems consistent with the way that Paul is writing. And so I I kind of favor the interpretation. Now, again, it, it could be another interpretation here, but I kind of favor the interpretation that what Paul is saying here is Apollos and I did not create divisiveness. Apollos and I Preached the gospel. You allowed in these worldly preachers. You allowed in these other people, and then you started acting like the world. Is it a shock to you that you allowed in this worldly theology and philosophy, and now you're acting like the world? You know, I I think that's probably what Paul is saying. Um, So let's keep going. Verse 8 Already you have all you want, already you've become rich, you have begun to reign. And without us, how I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we might reign with you. Can you taste the sarcasm in that? And by the way, what is Paul talking about when he says reign? You know, it's not rain as in when the rain comes down. It's R E I G N. It is reign like a king. Now, the real reason is because. In a kingdom, what the king does is rules and reigns, and there's this sense that we get to rule and reign with God in the kingdom that is to come. Let me give you um, an important piece of this. What we lost in the garden was ruling and reigning. In other words, it was dominion over everything. Instead, of having dominion over the plants and the animals and the fish and the sea and all that stuff, we allowed, Adam and Eve allowed, an animal to rule over them. And so they get kicked out of the garden with creation ruling over them. That's the story of Adam and Eve. Jesus reverses that curse. That's what the death and resurrection of Christ is. Jesus' blood forgives that sin and the sin that we willfully do against things we know that God doesn't want us to do. He forgives that sin by the blood of Jesus, makes it, makes it so that you could begin a new life, makes it so that you are justified. So in other words, you stand before God and he, he bangs on the gavel and says, not guilty because of the blood of Jesus so that we could be born again and made new. And when we do that, we begin to reign with him. This is what Paul is referring to in our new bodies, in our new lives. In other words, we rule in the world that is to come. This is training for heaven, essentially. So what Paul is saying is, um, I wish you really had become, you know, begun to reign. He's saying, you're already speaking like you guys are God's gift to the church, God's gift to the world. But really, it would be nice if that were really true. And I think that's what Paul's saying to the church. He's he's laying the sarcasm on pretty thick here. And then in verse 9, he says, "...for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings." We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. He keeps laying it on even thicker. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our very own hands. We are cursed. We are blessed. We are persecuted. We endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world right up until this moment. I think this is what Paul's telling the church. You have to understand that this is what leadership in the first century church looked like. Leadership in the first century church was not to be honored, to be put in the newspaper, to get on TV, and to buy three jets. That is not what leadership in the church looks like. It's not to have the nicest home and the biggest cars. It's not to have the fanciest rings or anything like that. Leadership in the first century church is to be like the condemned to die in a procession of people. And what Paul is saying is, oh, church you who are so wise, you act, how is it that we are apostles and you are honored and you think that you're the wisest and the most wonderful and all these different things, and yet we're like the ones condemned to die? How is that? What is your leadership showing? What Paul is saying is that this is what true leadership looks like in the church, one who is willing to lay down their lives for the sake of leading people well, and that's what Paul's doing. And then in verse 14, you're not going to believe this. Paul says this, I am writing this not to shame you. Oh, really, Paul? I don't know. It sounds <laughs> sounds pretty shaming to me. <laughs> but to warn you, my dear children. I, I, I like to think there that Paul paused and thought, whew, that was pretty harsh. So no, 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 it's not to shame you. It's just to warn you. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant. Oh, really, Paul? Is I want you to say what you really think. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love with a gentle spirit? Whew. So that's chapter four. Paul says, you guys, I'm going to come. I'm going to come visit this church and you better shape up. I mean, the the reason, one of the reasons why I didn't preach chapter four, which I feel like I very easily could have, you've heard this whole podcast, I could go on and on, is because church, I feel like you've got it. Paul's upset at the church. I, I feel like you you get it, right? Um. Because the first three chapters is just so much of that. And chapter four is just even more of that. And so I feel like at this point, you get it by now. But there are a couple things in this last section that I want you to see. He says in verse 16, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. And I think we might look at that phrase and go, How arrogant. You know, I mean, if you think about it right now, would you like, Look at your contacts on your phone. Just call somebody and say, I want you to imitate me in my way of life. What? I mean, that's insane. Like, none of us would do that. That just sounds so arrogant to do, and our sensibilities won't allow that. But you have to understand here that this is a completely different culture, a different type of world, a world where this radical individualism that we live in just doesn't exist. I'm going to talk about this in my message on Sunday on 1 Corinthians 5 that we live in a world of radical individualism uh jean-jacques Rousseau um, was one of the first people in the late 1700s to talk about looking inward for truth in your inner self which is a completely unchristian thing but he's kind of the father of individualism and the reason why is a non-christian and insane thing to say is because truth is found in jesus christ It's found in a person it's not found in yourself when you look deeply inside yourself, you see a person in need of a savior. You see a flawed individual. You see a sinner in need of a savior. That's what you should see. So, yes, Rousseau taught us to look at our feelings, for how we're thinking, and all that stuff. But, it, but it, my, my whole point is, we don't live in this world of crazy individualism. And yet Paul is kind of using this individualist argument to say, I urge you to imitate me, this whole community, so that basically, so that you could know the Lord better. Well, what are we called to do in Jesus? We're called to imitate Jesus. What is disciple making? Uh, I think disciple making is a few things, and I want to talk about this for a second. First, it's information. We get this amazing information about Jesus. We we see it and and the, think about this not in, only in terms of following Jesus but think about this in terms of your job even you know you could read and read and read the bible and have tons of good information but how do i really live this out you need somebody to imitate life from that's why it's important to good have good leaders that's why it's important to know the heart of your pastor that's why it's important to ask good questions when you go to a church. That's why it's important to to just know who your leaders are because whether you consciously do it or unconsciously do it, you're going to imitate somebody. And you need to know that. And so because we're going to do this probably even unconsciously, you need to know the hearts of your leaders and you need to choose who you're going to imitate. So Paul says, imitate me. And you will say in another passage, in another writing, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We know that Paul is imitating the way of Jesus. So the first is information. We learn about that. There's three eyes because I'm a pastor. I'll give you the three eyes. Imitation is the second way. Um, there's a great book. Is it Kempis? Uh, the Imitation of Christ? Um, my goodness, I'm not really sure. I know I have it at home on the side of my bed. I think it's Thomas Akempis. Um, the Imitation of Christ. It is amazing. It it, te- it just walks you through what to do every day in following Jesus. What to do with anger, what to do with sadness, what to do with, with um, uh, you know, just all sorts of life situations. Because we've got to put this information into practice, and the only way to do that is to imitate it one of the early things that I saw my youth pastor do when I was a kid was be compassionate to homeless people. And to be honest with you, I don't know that I'd seen that in a lot of people. I think I'd walked through downtown LA with my mom and my dad and, you know, they're just trying to protect me from homeless people. So they weren't very compassionate. They were kind of like, Nope, Nope. Won't talk to you. Nope. Don't have any money for you. And, and, and I get that because I've got kids too, and I, I want to protect them uh, when I see something that doesn't look right. Uh, I, I get it. I totally get that. I'm not trying to fault my parents or anything like that. But I saw my youth pastor. We went on a trip to San Francisco, and he was so compassionate to homeless people. And I just went, whoa, that's a different ethic. That's just something I hadn't seen. And he prayed with them, and he loved them. Then we went and fed meals to AIDS patients. These were people in San Francisco just dying of AIDS. And we went and gave them hot meals, and he prayed with every single one of them, and he just loved on every single one of these AIDS patients, and he had us go with them. I don't know that we read the Bible that trip, but I got a course in Scripture on that trip because I learned to imitate my youth pastor. And then the next step of discipleship is innovation there's information there's imitation and then there's innovation and innovation really takes place when you're you've imitated people but now you're there alone and it's your your chance to live out the gospel it's your chance to live out the teachings of the word of god and so you got to figure out what that's going to look like and how that's going to go in your life, and so you do, and you do something, and you, you realize, oh, this is how I'm going to live it out, and, and, and you live out the Word of God there, and, and then maybe you go make disciples, too, along the way. You're making more disciples. So there's information, in a, um, imitation, and then innovation in making disciples. All this to say, to sum up chapter four, Paul is saying, look, I'm an apostle. I've been set apart by Jesus. Jesus is going to judge me, and I've got no problem with that. The reason why I've got no problem with that is I'm doing the right thing, and I know it. And you guys are stuck in worldly wisdom, and it's time that you imitate me. It's time that you just accept that I, I want what's best for you. I want good things for you and not evil. And so I need you to follow me as I follow Christ so that I can lead you into this life that is reigning. We could probably tell stories about leadership for days and days and days, but what I just want to leave you with with this podcast is this sense that maybe you are called to lead. What do you do? You imitate Christ. Maybe you're called to do something. I don't know what it is you're called to do. You imitate Christ. You, you read Scripture and imitate Christ. And I do my best to imitate Jesus to you all, to show you the way that Jesus works out in me. But, you know, for the record, in case you didn't know, I'm a flawed person. I, I've messed up. I, I make mistakes. You know, if you, if you need, just need any of these, go talk to my wife. She'll probably tell you I'm the greatest person in the world, but I make mistakes. I do, you know, but the difference is, well, at least I'll try to own up to them when I do because I've learned that that transparency matters. One of the things I'm so appreciative of is my life group here at the church. And um, last week we were discussing 1 Corinthians 5, and you're going to hear that in an upcoming podcast. And what happened on 1 Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 is there's this, sexual sin among believers. And, um, and so my, my life group started asking me, hey, Pastor Dave, what's your accountability like? Who are you held accountable to? And I love that I've got a church that's asking me those questions. I don't know that anybody, and I even said to them, I said, you know, I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that. Maybe other leaders, but I doubt anybody in the church has ever asked me that. And I thought, how did I go pastoring churches for 20-some-odd years and never get asked that question? It's an important question to ask. So I'll tell you real quick what my accountability is like. First and foremost, my wife, I'd say she's my daily accountability partner. She's the person I talk to the most and share everything with. And any little thing that happens through my day, I talk to her about it. You know, Just always talk to her. But then I've got um, a couple of different people that I meet with um one person in the church i meet with on uh, a once a month basis and we talk i've got another person outside of the church that um i meet with uh in zoom calls and he asks me tough questions and good questions and asks me what the lord is doing in my life and uh, am i following the the leadings of the lord you know all kinds of stuff like that and then lastly i've got my prayer partner who i meet with weekly and uh, my prayer partner who I meet with uh, just keeps, we just keep all the little things, even personal things in front of the Lord together. Because I don't know if you've ever been through this, but you know, when you've got a lot of things going on, when you have sixty-some odd competencies that you need to lead a church, (laughs) some prayer things fall through the cracks. And so my my prayer partner keeps me accountable to pray. And so that's my accountability. Um, And also I would say to you, I'm an open book, too, so if you ever wonder anything else for me, shoot me an email, write me, find me in church on Sunday, ask me the question. It really doesn't bother me at all. I like that people are doing that. I think it's important. So anyways, that's 1 Corinthians 4. I hope that it blesses you. I hope that you dig into the scriptures yourself and ask the Lord what he's trying to say to you. So imitate Jesus because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that God has touched your heart through today's message. Please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more information about the ministries of REC, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. See the links in the description.